Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your great love for us. You are so patient and kind with us. Even when we have been your enemies, you show your patience and you show your love. You call us out of our sin, out of the evil that our hands have done. And you call us into new life, into your kingdom. We ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts. That you would change us especially toward those who are our enemies. Those who frustrate and vex us to no end. Lord, help us to see ourselves in their faces. To know how deeply we have gone against you. And yet you show us unfailing love. Teach us, Lord, to love our enemies, to pray for them, to be the kind of people that point the world toward your present and coming kingdom. I ask it in the name of Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. After spending the entire school year walking through Paul's letter to the Romans, this summer we are focusing on the stories of what Jesus did and said in the Gospel of Luke that point toward the urgency of the kingdom of God. Uh, when we ever, whenever you get a, a letter in the mail that's marked urgent, when you open it up, what do you usually find? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> your, your, your vehicle insurance has, is you know, set to inspire, expire. It's always a come on. It's always some, you know, somebody wanting you to purchase something that you probably don't need. Urgent! <laughs> Pay attention to this. Uh, yeah, we, we tend to fill our lives with things that we don't need. Uh, Sarah was going through our, some, uh, a cabinet in our basement recently and just started pulling out all this stuff that we haven't used in years. And <laughs> she said, you know what? We really don't need to be cluttering our cabinets with this stuff. And so we actually took most of it and just put it out on a table in front of our house. And our kids wrote, you know, free on it. And then we had lots of fun watching from the upstairs windows uh, you know, <laughs> to see all the people that came by and picked stuff up. Now, hopefully, that was all, you know, they had a good use for it. And they put it to good use in, in their lives. But for us, it was just stuff that was clutter. We do the same thing with our calendars. You know, if you look at how you spend your day, how much of it is stuff that you really don't need to do. <laughs> um, one of the things that I struggle with a lot is, I, I've heard somebody call it the tyranny of the urgent. Uh, that so often the things that we start 
focusing on our time and energy on are all these things that we feel are somehow urgent, somehow really, really vital that we get this done right now. And it's usually the thing that's like right in front of us. Uh, but how many of those things that we feel are urgent are truly important? I don't know, if you're like me, sometimes the, the urgent replaces the important in our lives. God wants what is truly important also to be truly urgent in our lives. He doesn't want his kingdom mission to be forgotten like a side dish on the back burner that just sits there, forgotten, until it's all dried out and no good. I recently read, reread a, a book uh, by N.T. Wright, a British scholar, uh, called How God Became King, The Forgotten Story of the Gospels. Wright points out in this book that many Christians, including pastors, teachers, and seminary professors, and scholars, have missed or forgotten the main point of the Gospels. The books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't primarily about how to go to heaven when you die. They weren't written just to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. They don't simply give us some rules on how to live a good life and be a, good, a nice person. Wright argues that the whole point of the Gospels is to tell the story of how God became king on earth as in heaven. God created everything, but since then, humans have rebelled against his rule. Sin and evil have warped and twisted our hearts and our lives. The world is being fought over by competing nations and tribes and ideologies. In the middle of the mess that we have created, the Gospels declare that heaven has broken into our world and changed everything. Jesus is ushering in a new era of justice, peace, and freedom that God has promised to his people. Jesus didn't come just to teach us how to behave like nice people. He came to give us a new way of life. He announced that a whole new world was being born and taught people how to live within that new world. Jesus isn't just an example for us to follow. He's doing something new that will change the way things are for everybody. So what is God doing? In Jesus, God has done what he promised he would do through Israel's anointed king. He has fully and finally revealed who he is. God is bringing his kingdom, his loving rule on earth as in heaven. Jesus announced that the kingdom of God is at hand, coming about through what he did and said. God's kingdom is a present reality. 
new creation has begun and one day will be completed. Wright says, God really has become king in and through Jesus. A door has been opened that no one can shut. Jesus is now the world's rightful Lord, and all other lords are to fall at his feet. No one can stay indifferent. Everything that Jesus did and said revealed the Father's glory. To get a clear picture of God's kingdom mission, we have to take a step back and, and look at the Gospels from 30,000 feet. What story are each of the writers telling? And how does it connect with the rest of God's word? The Gospel of Matthew talks about how the story of Israel reaches its climax and conclusion in Jesus. That's why he starts with this long, boring to us genealogy of Jesus that stretches all the way back to King David. He's making the point that God has chosen and called Israel to be the people through whom he will redeem the world, and Jesus came to fulfill that calling. The Gospel of Mark, on the other hand, is a fast-paced gospel. It's the shortest one. It has this built-in sense of urgency. Mark shows that in Jesus, God's promise to rescue his people comes true. God's new world breaks into ours in an unexpected way. God has come in person to set all things right. This summer, we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is a, is a student of, script, of God's Word. He goes back and shows all the way through how the Hebrew Scriptures had to be fulfilled. Israel's struggles and God's warnings and promises all led up to the Messiah being crucified and resurrected to, uh, to redeem the world. The Gospel of John reveals a surprising fulfillment. On the cross, Jesus was enthroned as king of the whole world. A crucified king? Who would have ever seen that coming? In Jesus, the story of creation was completed. The power of sin and death was broken. Now God's new creation has begun. Israel and humanity in general was a mess. So God had to do something radically new. But the radically new thing that God did was actually the thing that he had always promised, the thing for which the people had always hoped and prayed, just not in the way that they expected it. God's kingdom is coming on earth as in heaven. The new creation has come in Jesus. And one day the glory of God will fill the earth like the waters fill the sea. Jesus' kingdom is in and for this world. Right now, the new creation is visible in us, in all who follow Jesus. 
Jesus says that one of the ways that the new creation, the kingdom of God, affects our lives is in how we treat our enemies. Think about the person in your life who frustrates you the most. Who is that person just, who just seems to intuitively know how to get under your skin, how to just jab you in exactly the right point, you know, place, how to push your button that just sets you off? Or the person that has caused the most pain in your life? When you think about that person, how does that person make you feel? Do you feel anger, bitterness, jealousy, rage? Maybe you want to get revenge. You want, you want them to get what's coming to them. You know, if you could just see them come crashing down, huh, oh, that would feel so good. <laughs> Think about the way that we tend to act towards our enemies, towards the people that most drive us batty. We tend to either lash out at them, you know, verbally or physically or emotionally, or, or we try you know, passive aggression, where we kind of just give them the cold shoulder, completely shun them from our lives, uh, try and undermine them however we can in what we say about them to other people, you know, thinking, ah, I'll get them the sneaky way. <laughs> we wish and look and even try to arrange for bad things to happen to them. But now think about that. Think about that person in light of our story from Genesis, our story of Joseph. Remember what had happened to Joseph? He'd had all these dreams about his brothers and his parents bowing down to him, even though he was one of the youngest of 12 brothers. And his brothers got so jealous, so angry, so mad at him that they were going to kill him. They threw him into a pit, you know, and were like, now what we should do, we should just get rid of him once and for all. But then they saw some traders going by who were, you know, a caravan going to Egypt. And they said, ah, we'll get rid of him even better. We'll sell him and he can be a slave. And that's what they did. And he ended up in Egypt. And later on, he ended up in prison in Egypt. But God raised him up, brought him out of prison and made him second in command of all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And then this famine came along, and his brothers came down to Egypt looking for food because Egypt had stored up all this grain and nobody else had any. And Joseph recognized them. And sure, he played with them a little bit. <laughs> you know, he wanted to see his youngest brother, Benjamin, who they hadn't brought along. But eventually, when they came back, he showed them who he was. And he, instead of treating them, instead of squashing them like bugs, instead of you know, sending them packing with no food, instead of giving them everything that they deserved, 
He showed them mercy and compassion. He provided for all of their needs. He said, bring the whole family down. The, fam the famine's going to continue for five more years. I'll give you a new home right here. That's the kind of love that God shows to us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now we hear that last phrase in bold, uh, do to others as you would have them do to you, quite a bit in our culture. Uh, we call it the golden rule. Uh, and in fact, there's even a... Uh, plumbing and heating company in Grimes that calls themselves Golden Rule was plumbing and heating. Uh, and it's commendable. You know, they, they, their motto, they say, our name was chosen based on something we value above all else, treating others how we want to be treated. And they even have five rules, um, they have an acronym, rules, uh, for life. Respect, understanding, loyalty, expertise, and service. And those are all great rules for business and life. But Jesus pushes even further. In the upper room, when he was with his disciples, the night he was going to be betrayed by one of them and go to his death, he said this, Love one another as I have loved you. In today's reading, he said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus himself prayed for his enemies from the cross as they were pounding in the nails to his wrists and feet. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. In Romans 5, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? If you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ... That movie directed by Mel Gibson, as the soldiers are crucifying Jesus, there's a close-up of a hand holding the, the nail and the hammer that's going to drive it through. And that hand is Mel Gibson's own hand. He put himself in the movie just his hand to emphasize that every one of us are guilty of being God's enemies. All of us have held the nail there by the way that we live our lives and the way that we treat other people. I want you to take a look at Matthew 18. Uh, if you got your Bibles, open them up to that. You know, you got to go to the New Testament towards the end, find Matthew 
and then chapter 18. In your pew Bibles, it's about page 1527. In this chapter, uh, Jesus was telling his disciples how they should deal with one another, how they should reconcile with one another when uh, someone has been hurt. Uh, a lot of times we base our, our, the way that we treat one another you know, as a, a church council and so forth uh, on these words from Jesus in Matthew 18. You know, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. This is verse 15, just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he won't listen, then take two others along and so forth. Go through these steps of trying to make things right between the two of you. He's saying that our faith in God should make a difference in how we treat one another. We should speak the truth in love and gently confront a brother or sister in faith who've strayed off the path and who has hurt us in the process. So then in verse 21, Peter asked Jesus a follow-up question. It's like he was wondering, what should reconciliation look like in my life? What are the limits of forgiveness? He asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister in the faith when, they, when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter was being very generous. Uh, Jewish law only required forgiveness three times. Uh, Peter was doubling that and then adding one. You know, because seven was seen as like the perfect number. Yet Jesus responded, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or that can also be translated 70 times seven. Wait a minute. 77 or 490 times? Wouldn't you lose count along the way? Maybe Jesus' point was that if you're counting, you're not really forgiving. You're just biding your time, chalking up little tally marks. Imagine a husband and wife who, everywhere they go, carry around a little notebook, and each of them. And whenever the husband does something absolutely stupid and just infuriates his wife to no end she says with, through clenched teeth I forgive you and then turns off to the side and makes a little tally mark in her book and the husband does the same thing whenever his wife forgets something or you know messes up or just irritates him he says all right darling it's okay i forgive you and sometimes they go for days without putting things in their in their tally marks and some days it's like they filled an entire page <laughs> oh yeah well you said this well i think this and on and on and on it goes and the point of the tally marks was getting up to 77. Oh, the moment that you get to 78, then wham! 
that's not forgiveness. That's just developing a long fuse that still explodes when you get to the end of it. Real forgiveness is unconditional. The way that God forgives. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far the Lord removes our sins from us. How far can you go west before you get east? (laughs) How far east can you go before you get west? It just goes. (laughs) God wants us to forgive as we have been forgiven. He has given us extravagant forgiveness that we could never earn. And so Jesus commands us to show love and mercy even to our enemies. Love your enemies, he said. That's got to be his most difficult command to carry out. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything in return. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. It all comes back to the unbelievable but undeniable love, mercy, and forgiveness of God. A love that went to the cross for us. N.T. Wright says, the cross was not just a way of getting us off the hook of our own petty naughtiness. It was not just an example of some general benevolent truth. The cross is much, much more. It is the moment when the story of Israel reaches its climax. The moment when at last the watchmen on Jerusalem's walls see their God coming in his kingdom. The, the moment when the, king, when the people of God are renewed so as to be at last the royal priesthood who will take over the world not with the love of power, but with the power of love. The moment when the kingdom of God overcomes the kingdoms of the world. The cross is the moment when a great old door, locked and barred since our first disobedience, swings open suddenly to, re- to reveal not just the Garden of Eden, open once more to our delight, But the coming city, the garden city, the new Jerusalem that God had always planned and is now inviting us to go through the door and build with him. The dark power that stood in the way of this kingdom vision has been defeated, overthrown, rendered null and void. Its legions will still make a lot of noise and cause a lot of grief, but the ultimate victory is now assured. This is the vision that the gospel writers offer us as they bring together the kingdom and the cross. The cross was where God's kingdom broke through our sin and the world's evil. Jesus took it all upon himself. He showed kindness to his enemies. God's kingdom is coming. It's already at the gates. 
nothing can be more important or more urgent than the kingdom where God shows love and forgiveness even to his enemies. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more will we be saved and transformed by his life? Amen.